Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hello, how are you now? You're listening to The BIP Show. BIP is for business investing and policy, and that's what we're here to talk about. Don't forget to hit subscribe and rate the show wherever you get your podcasts. I am James Whelan, Investment Manager at VFS Group. In a rare occasion, when I get to say the hellos, Paul, a passenger, I am joined by Paul Colgan, Director at CT Group. Paul, thanks for letting me borrow the keys to the big chair, and I promise that I will return it without a scratch. Yeah, you're very welcome. Uh, it is nice to be uh, a passenger today. Um, you have the aircraft, James. You have control. I have control. I have the aircraft. Uh, this is your uh, captain speaking. Currently, it is 12.45 in Sydney on the 10th of December. The Wind is blowing uh, 37 kilometres an hour from the south-southeast, and it looks like it's going to be a pretty safe trip here. Should get you home in about half an hour's time, at least, depending on what's going on. Now, what happened this week? Uh, well, nothing, really, um, apart from a vaccine, and uh, and Rudy Giuliani got the Rona, as they say. is pretty much the only thing that happened. So, um, But seriously, we'll get into that after that. The vaccine making a big difference on markets. Has it been priced in? What has been priced in? Uh People now having to come to terms with the fact that they are being dragged off their couches from their work work from home environments, getting out of their sweatpants for once, first time in six months, and will soon have to be forced to interact with other human beings. As much as I am dreading that reality, what I'm not dreading is this week's guest. So let me paint you a picture. The year, and he doesn't know this, so I'm going to do it. So this is a bit of a where, 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 where is your life sort of situation. The year was 2004. And a young, good-looking James Whelan was a regular at <laughs> small town, small town RSL. I'm going somewhere with this, trust me. Regularly talking markets with a with a with another good-looking chap with a, a, a polished accent and a fondness for Coronas with limes in the top. <laughs> I actually didn't realise that I was talking to a giant of the industry, having run investment desks from London to Bahrain to Sydney. He sits on numerous investment committees. Uh, I was fascinated by his easy discussion of what exactly was going on in a then relatively unknown China and the broader emerging market space. No one was really talking about some of those things at that time. His simple call back then, 2004, 2005, was long oil when it was about 40 bucks. It went on to be $160 uh, within three years, an amazing call and one that I keep with me for a very long time. I then sort of actually started to discover exactly who he was and uh, it it turns out that he was actually someone uh, very high up in the industry. It was from those early, early conversations that my love of this space grew, and he doesn't know it, but he's actually a big part of the reason why I am doing what I am doing today. Television and conference presenter and author of The Pain Report, which I recommend everyone stop this podcast now, subscribe, come <laughs> back. We, we won't go anywhere. Subscribe to that uh, to that newsletter. It's fantastic. The Pain Report. He sits on, as I said, various investment committees. I won't mention which ones uh, to play favourites. Uh, great speaker on CNBC all the time, and we're very, very lucky to have him here. A great uh, operator. He's famous for his controversial and his contrary calls and more famous for being one of the nicest guys in the industry. It is my privilege to have you on the BIP show today. Jonathan Payne, welcome. Thank you, James. I'm, I'm actually speechless and that was the 
one of the best introductions I think I've ever had in my life. And you will not believe this, James. I actually do remember meeting you for the very, very first time um, at the Gunori Club. And I really enjoyed our conversations. Now, I'm, I can't recollect how old you were back in 2004, but um, you've always been very, very youthful, had extraordinary enthusiasm. And I, I remember those, um, those conversations with, with great affection. And uh, I also remember having the Coronas with you as well, James. So thank you very much for the opportunity of being with you today. Oh, very, very good. Now, um just a bit jokingly, you know, the industry works in this way. So you called Long Oil at $40. It's now, it's it's back to $40. Are you happy to admit that you were wrong on that call or was it just waiting for it to? <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's a lovely one. Yeah. yeah that's, that's the sort of stuff that we cop all the time in this industry. All right. So uh, are, you ready to, are you ready to crack into it? Absolutely. All right. All right. Uh, Paul, you got anything to open with? No, 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 but that was a very charming intro, uh, James. You really know how to turn it on. So. Oh, well, <laughs> if, uh, I, I'm, I'm always the guy that MCs the wedding. I'm never on the... Uh, I'm never the best man. I'm always the guy with the microphone. So, okay, now I'm gonna, we're going to try something a little bit, a little bit different, a little bit new uh, on this one because you're the you're the generalist, you're the macro guy, you're the world guy, and I want to try. So, so stick with me here. We'll take a little tour around the globe. So, I'm going to call this around the world in 80 seconds, and I'll go region by region, a few countries, throw it in there, and we'll see what's happening there and where the investment case is. If the investment case isn't, and uh, and we'll just just hammer through it. So, everyone, take your notepads out because you'll know what to buy and what not to buy. Pretty soon at the end of this one. All right, you ready to go? If you don't like one, just go past them. Just go past it. Okay, you set? Okay, starting locally, Australia. Australia. Okay, Philip Lowe's um, going to keep rates low for as long as he possibly can. He certainly does not want to be the, the first central banker to raise interest rates. I have become somewhat more optimistic about Australia. Uh, I've been a mega bear on Australian banks and latterly in the last few weeks and months become a bit more positive. Uh, does Australia become a kind of safe haven? Uh, moving forward. So I'm, I'm generally more optimistic about Australia. Okay. Uh, going north, China. China, first in, first out of the coronavirus. Uh, they've managed the pandemic pretty well. Uh, the government has fine-tuned monetary fiscal policy. The markets uh, are responding pretty well. The Chinese currency is performing well. Um, you know, net-net, China is going to continue to be a locomotive of the global economy for a long time to come. Good. So, uh, Southeast Asia. Well, Southeast Asia, if I can just really more focus on North Asia for a minute, mm -hmm. South Korea handled the pandemic well, some great companies. Uh, just a broad brush observation, many of the Asian uh, nations actually handled the pandemic remarkably well. Uh, Taiwan is the gold standard uh, in terms of having the lowest fatality per capita ratio in the world, lowest infection to per capita, nation of 24 million people. I hope, I genuinely hope and pray that the rest of the world takes notice and, and learns with humility uh, from, uh, from the Taiwanese and their remarkable um, handling of the coronavirus. Uh, Taiwan, obviously, in the crosshairs, uh, excuse the pun, with respect to uh, China. This is an area that I'm devoting a lot of my time to at the present. Uh, but net-net, uh, let's go um, South Korea as well. Very, very, I think, very strong economic performance coming out of South Korea. Can we cover Japan? Have we spoke? Uh, I'm no? about to go to Japan. Yeah. Let's go to Japan. Go to Japan. Let's go to Japan. Go to Japan. I've recently described Japan as a, as, as a core option on global growth. Mm. Uh, I think they've handled the pandemic well. We obviously have a, a, a new PM, which is basically Mr. Continuity candidate. Uh, Kuroda's still at the BOJ. 
Um, with regard to the composition of the Japanese market, you have the highest exposure of basically cyclicals in terms of industrials and uh, discretionary uh, company sectors in Japan. So if you're looking for a call option on global growth, Japan pretty much delivers it. Foreigners have been big sellers of Japan for a while, but more latterly have started increasing their exposure to Japan. So in a globally diversified uh, equity portfolio, I would definitely be uh, long Japan here for the long haul and a buyer on weakness. Well, very good. Uh, over to Europe. Over to Europe. Where do we start in Europe? Um, we're not allowed to talk about the UK as part of Europe anymore, no, are we? I'm not. I've got Britain Although we've got a very important meeting tonight and we'll see whether or not we're going to have the actual final, final, final Brexit. Uh, Boris, of course, going across the Atlantic to have a face-to-face um, with, their, with his counterparts in Europe. But let's not talk Brexit. That would spoil the show spoil absolutely us. and completely. Um, let's go Western Europe briefly. Uh, France, obviously, um, you know, spot a bother. Uh, on a number of societal uh, levels. Italy is the Achilles heel of Europe. Germany's performed reasonably well through this. Net-net, the Western European markets are rather cheap. We all know that one of the worst performing sectors in the world in the last five, even 10 years, been European banks. Uh, Are they the phoenix rising from the ashes of truly and utterly bombed out uh, discounted price-to-book ratios? Uh, I think uh, I'm a bit more cautious there. Uh, Italy, I think, has some really painful years ahead of it. Um, So net-net, yes, Europe is cheap. Can it hold together? Yes, I believe it will. Um, The ECB is being absolutely super accommodative. They're not going to make the mistakes they made coming out of the GFC where they were one of the first major central banks in the world to raise rates. I think they're going to stay as low for as long as they possibly can. UK equity market is relatively cheap, although we rallied 14, 15% in the last five weeks. But UK was probably one of the cheapest developed markets uh, in the world. Um, is Boris going to pull off yet another miraculous escape? Uh, will we get some kind of reasonable resolution of this never-ending Brexit saga? Perhaps. Uh, Net-net, I wouldn't, Europe wouldn't be my favourite part of the world. But on a relative to the US, I'd probably start allocating something to Europe. Very good. Uh, now, Britain, have we covered Britain? You're okay there? Yeah, let's leave Britain. It does, it does, confuse, it does confuse me that, that Barnier and that they, that they couldn't get it done. And so Boris and, and Ursula are going to go and meet up. It's, it's, what do they know? What they don't know what they're doing. Yeah, it's a very good point, isn't yeah. it? Very good point. Can I ask you just a medium-term outlook for cable? Yes. Yeah, what do you think? I, ha- I have not got a strong conviction on the British pound right here. Okay. Um, all right. Now, General EM or South America and General EM, emerging markets go. Yeah, General EM, you know, that's, um, you know, if you look at, for example, the WEM, uh, the ETF, yep. emerging market ETF, yep, yep. I mean, what have you got there? I mean, you've got China's the number one exposure. Uh, then you've got South Korea. You've got quite a bit of Taiwan in there because yep. of Taiwan Semiconductor, which, by the way, is, you know, the holy grail of the, the chip the chip world. Um, and then you get India. India's an interesting play. I've been structurally, I, I've been strategically bullish on India for a very, 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 very long time. Um, and obviously the Sensex, you know, the stock market there, which, I mean, how could you ignore a market with a stock market index called Sensex? Um, it's been one of the best performers. <laughs> and the nifty. And, and the nifty uh, Sensex, moreover. Uh, so, so when you're playing emerging, and then you've got Brazil and Russia, I really haven't got anything sensible to say about Russia. I can't get my head around or go past Vladimir Putin. Uh, South America, we have to look at Brazil. The politics there are pretty volatile. I think South America has some challenges, but having said all of that, um, I, I never want to be massively bearish 
uh, on, on South America collectively. So I understand the market consensus is that 2021 is the year for the emerging markets. I kind of understand it. I, I, I get the thesis, uh, but I'd rather play, if you're going to start underweighting US, I'd rather play the long Japan trade. Yeah, that's pretty good. Now, speaking of the US, and yes. this is where we'll end our trip, uh, North America. Yeah, okay, the United States, wow. Where does one even begin? <laughs> I think the watershed moment for me, uh, other than, of course, this global cam- pa- pandemic in 2020, is when Jerome Powell basically said, look, he's changing the monetary regime. Uh, we basically turned a, 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 to, to, uh, we turned the page uh, in terms of um, monetary policy formulation in the United States with a much greater emphasis on employment rather than inflation. We know that the, the Fed's going to allow inflation to run above 2%, and we can have a discussion perhaps later about inflation. Yep. But ultimately, when a Fed chair says, we're not even thinking about, thinking about, thinking about, and emphasis there, there's the third, third derivative, derivative there. Yeah. A lot of people say he said it twice. I actually heard him say it. He said it three times in a row. Um, you know that the, the Fed is, has nailed um, interest rates at, at pretty much at the zero bound. Um, and obviously, we're seeing the, the scale of the, 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 the quantitative easing. The Fed's balance sheet, suffice to say, has has gone off like an Elon Musk uh, rocket. And so the super accommodative. What's going to happen on the fiscal side? Well, we had massive, massive fiscal stimulus. Um, and then we talk about the composition of, of uh, the Senate, January the 5th, Georgia. That's a really important date in the US uh, political calendar. If we, uh, if we get the Dems winning both those seats, then obviously they, they're 50-50 in the, in the Senate with uh, Kamala Harris actually uh, having the, the, the majority vote. So that changes the legislative agenda. My, my view on the United States right now, and let's, let's get into the, the market um, composition. We all know the story for the year, massive concentration in these mega cap names, huge momentum. That has come or has started to unravel with the wonderful news uh, on the vaccine front. And we saw the sharpest rotation growth to value uh, that we've ever actually seen. I think JP Morgan described it as a 15 standard deviation event. I, I don't even know how big that number is. Yeah. But, you know, James, I have no doubt, will know exactly <laughs> how many uh, zeros we need to put in after the decimal point. But the bottom line is... Um, I, I, I continue to see this rotation out of um, growth into value in the United States. And uh, let's, uh, let's see January the 20th, uh, Joe Biden as president. Um, I think Donald Trump now is effectively been certified, and I use the word certified carefully, because the Electoral College will certify the vote on December the 14th. That's, that's, it's very important that that happens, and, and that's the next stage that's there. Do you think uh, my pick for the runoff race in Georgia, which is very important, is that they're going to go one each? I, right. think that, I think the voters. I think the voters will see. I mean, this is my view that the voters will see that it's better to have that balance and better to have some control yeah. or some some sort of check and balance on that. If they get if they get a complete, in effect, a bluish wave, a very 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 good uh, outcome for the Democrats. But it means that tax uh, tax law can pass, healthcare stuff can pass, and it becomes that socialist utopia that everyone is fearing so much. That, yeah, absolutely. The yeah. wizards. The wizards on Wall Street. Uh, didn't want a, a Biden blue wave. Suffice to say, Goldman Sachs seamlessly transitioned from a few months ago saying a blue wave was bad for financial markets, then suddenly changed their tune and said a blue wave was good, reflationary, lots of infrastructure, etc. However, uh, most people on Wall Street 
uh, feared a blue wave because, of course, as you say, James, it would unveil uh, higher taxation and more regulation. Yeah. And why the wizards uh, like the Trump presidency is that he secured lower taxation and pursued deregulation. That uh, which... (laughs) I hate to say it, very cynical, but yes, we do prefer a more accommodative uh, president. Yes. Speaking of the president, now I've mentioned, and you mentioned um, Powell before, so I'm just I'm going to go a little bit off script on this one. But the uh, do you think it's going to be different? Obviously, it will be different, but how will it, how will it be different having a president that won't lean so much on the Fed chair? Well, we've got Janet Yellen likely now. She's Janet Yellen's now the Treasury uh, when she's nomination, yep. Yep. so nominee, so. Um, I think this further impresses upon me that monetary and fiscal policy globally is joined at the hip. I think the distinction between monetary and fiscal policy is is evaporating and every central banker will protest, uh, just as Hamlet did, um, that, of course, um, we are independent, totally autonomous, so on and so forth. But I think at the end of the day, given the gravity of the global pandemic, that um, there was this kind of necessity that governments intervene, create that bridge of hope to the other side as they implemented lockdowns around the world for the first time in history. Yep. And that monetary policy would accommodate that gargantuan increase in um, federal government spending. And Janet Yellen is a, a, a labour economist. That's her training. Mm-hmm. And I think she will do everything she can to ensure that um, the labour market, um, it, it absolutely booms in the next couple of years. So I see highly accommodated fiscal policy being accomp- accompanied and accommodated by monetary well, policy. Well, let's just go. There, there's, um, I, I think for me, the defining image of 2020 uh, from an economics perspective was that day that uh, uh, the Treasury Secretary Mnuchin and uh, the Fed Chair Jerome Powell were in were up on the hill and they were both in their masks and they were doing that photo of them doing an elbow bump. Yeah. And from a uh, markets and economics perspective, that is, you know, the defining image of what happened uh, around the world in, in 2020. It was uh, fiscal and uh, monetary policy working together. Absolutely. Uh, it, yep. You know, at a, <laughs> I hate the word because uh, it's been around so much, but unprecedented scales. <laughs> Uh, enormous coordination, um, and uh, I think it has probably changed a lot of um, economic fundamentals uh, very positively, but also will change how governments around the world think about um, fiscal um, strategy. I, I think that's that's absolutely right. And is there a politician today um, that doesn't enjoy spending? Um, it is regardless of ideological persuasion that every basic every politician is now effectively a Keynesian. (laughs) And, you know, we're all Keynesians together now. Um, And the wonderful thing is it's being accommodated by ever-increasing central bank balance sheets. And we can have wonderfully, um, you know, elegant, ideological, intellectual debates about whether this is the monetization of debt. We can even get into MMT and the like. But at the end of the day the central banks will do whatever it takes uh, to deliver stronger economic growth and a return to you know, normal employment levels. Yeah, no, but and, and, and as you say, and I've heard you say, rates will not be normalised. Well, uh, at some point in time they may well be, but I don't know a central bank governor today 
that wishes to be the first. Yeah, who's going who's to be the first over that parapet? To, who's going to be the first over yeah. that parapet? Yeah, yeah. No, and, and, well, well and, we know what we we know what needs to happen to get to get there. Particularly in Australia, they've been uh, Phil Lowe has been really clear on this. Is they want to see not in forecasts but in actual results. Uh, uh, inflation printing at something like two and a half or two point seven five for a sustained period of time before they would think, okay, well now now we can move on it. Now we are a long way off that. I do worry about the inflation picture. I think probably there's um, the the way the economic activity mix is changing as a result of closed borders, etc., is going to lead to some unforeseen and unintended consequences. So I think that's going to be interesting to. Play, to watch play out over the next 12 months or so and how that impacts the inflation picture. Uh, because this this recovery, uh, after um, in the last week's show, I am officially a raging bull on the Australian economy. Um, uh, the, the, the speed of this recovery is going to be pretty astonishing. All of the data, there's nothing that suggests there's weakness. Job creation's coming back. Um, uh, there's enormous domestic demand. Uh, there's, you know, billions and billions of dollars sitting in bank accounts ready to spend uh, and people want to spend it. You know, this summer is going to be pretty interesting. Anyway, let so, me get no, out of the way. Well, we're going to keep on going with the inflation yep. topic. So what, yep. okay, and, and, and I'm, a, I'm bullish on the inflation story that I think it can actually be propped up long term. What, what are your views on the inflationary story going long term? More than just, I mean, obviously it's going to pop in the next couple of months. We, we will right. see well, there's certain base effects. So yep. US CPI, for example, around April, May is going to spike purely because of the base effect. Yep. Um, but let me just broaden out. And I think both of you, um, uh, I think both of you, are, we're, we're kind of on the same page and, and particularly what Paul was just saying. If you add up the fiscal and monetary stimulus, and I think Bank of America's numbers are about right, give or take a trillion here or there. If you combine federal and monetary stimulus, it is $22 trillion, with a T, $22 trillion in 2020. Now, to say we've never seen anything like this before is a massive understatement. And yes, Paul, under, un- unprecedented is a- an overused word uh, this year, but this is beyond and above unprecedented. It's the right word, though. It is it, yeah. exactly the right word. Yeah. $22 trillion, And I think if I'm right, that's $14 trillion of fiscal stimulus and $8 trillion of QE, quantitative easing. So if you plug $22 trillion of stimulus into your kind of equation or even stop thinking about it from a quantity theory of money, Irving Fisher, what was he, 1911 or 18? I might be out by a few years. I'm sure you'll correct me. 1911, I think it was. I mean, you know, money supply multiplied by the velocity or turnover of money is at all times equal to P, which is inflation prices, or T, sometimes use Q, but basically economic activity. So... Now, the problem with that uh, quantity theory of money is post-2007 and eight, where everyone in the world was a- increasing money supply you know, through quantitative easing and yeah. the like, yeah. you didn't get traction between the money supply growth and the rest of the equation. Why? Because the velocity of money declined precipitously in the United States as it did in Japan. Mm. Why? Because of deleveraging of the financial system. Therefore, the credit multiplier wasn't flowing through, wasn't effective. Okay, go. This time around... The, the banking system in the United States is in better shape than it was in 07, 08, by definition. By, for starters, no, no, no major commercial bank in the United States has been saved this time around. In 2008, the US government rescued a lot of them. I mean, some of them failed, disappeared, and others were sold for a dollar, and they were all amalgamated, so on and so forth, preceding 
the 07-08 period, we had the 90s in Japan, which involved the greatest deleveraging of a nation's balance sheet, bank's balance sheet in history. Mm. Plus 07-08 with the deleveraging of the European banking system. We haven't got a similar releveraging. What I'm trying to say is that the prospect this time that velocity could actually start moving upwards as we move into 2021, facilitated and accelerated by massive fiscal stimulus. So the difference this time, and goodness gracious me, it is different this time, and in fact every time (laughs) is different, is that we have a combination of the mother of all fiscal and monetary stimuli, the likes of which we've never seen before, with the central banks telling us that they're not going to dream about raising rates till they see the whites of the eyes of inflation, i.e. they're pursuing a reactive a reactive decision-making mechanism or function rather than proactive, yeah. and therefore all things equal, inflation has to rise. And then on top of that, you've got instead of globalisation taking place, you've got a de facto deglobalization and a potential decoupling between the United States and China. And China was the greatest contributor to the deflation in the goods market in the last 20 to 25 years. Therefore, moving forward, um, the China factor will not be as deflationary as we have witnessed in the last 25 years. And you've got supply chains being disrupted. So if you get massive demand meeting a, a, a set amount of supply, you get demand pull inflation. Yep, and 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 the the biggest thing, and we talk about this with Ken and and g'day Ken Vexler, who would usually be on this show. We always talk about this. That's the one thing that that gets in the way of that inflationary upswing is that suddenly cheap goods come in, right, and just stuff the whole stuff the whole show. Right. That, if you'll excuse me, not as not as polished as you, but it stuffs the show. Yeah. Um. And yep. and that's it. So so the decoupling might just be the thing that means that goods can stay expensive or stay stay more expensive. Right. So, I mean, we all know the price of PCs, the laptop of yours, James. I mean, there's been a dramatic decline in the cost of technology. And and by the way, I don't necessarily, I'm not suggesting that that the cost of technological goods is not going to remain very, 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 very low. But we're getting disruptions in the the agricultural markets now, in the commodity markets, uh, oil prices. Now, I know that, you know, 25 to 30 years time, everyone's going to be driving an EV, an electric vehicle. And we're not going to have put petrol into our cars, et cetera, et cetera. But that's still some time away. And and if you see this significant pickup in the global economy next year, which I believe we will see, because there's a lot of pent-up demand. And Paul alluded to it earlier. People have got a lot of savings. We've got a lot of savings. Seven, what is it? Seven, seven and a half to ten percent of global GDP in personal savings. Apparently. It's extraordinary. It these, extraordinary. These, these are massive numbers. Yeah. Um, so. All of the ingredients are there for inflation to actually start, you know, appearing in the next couple of years. And, uh, okay, so that's the inflation side. Now, we talked about the rotation, and I wanted to get onto that rotation as well. Yep. We touched on it just before, so we'll yep. skip back to it now. Yeah. Um, you mentioned, I just I, I checked out your, your most recent note that, uh, that that you sent, and that's, I, I please insist people, subscribe to the pain report. It'll... It'll do yourself a big favour. So the, the, the great rotation that people have said was from growth into value, sort of mislabeled in your view. Do you want to go down that path and just, and just walk us through that? Well, to a certain extent, it was more um, a rotation from the winners to the losers. So obvious, the obvious winners in, the, in this ghastly uh, global pandemic 
were the so-called stay-at-home stocks. So the poster child of that is Zoom, yep. Zoom video conferencing. Incidentally, which is down about 30% um, in the last um, uh, two months or so. I get chills down my back even thinking at the mention of its name. <laughs> <laughs> everyone's, everyone's on Teams now anyway. So that's, that's, that's sort of what happened. I, did, I left a lot of money on the table with my Zoom purchase as well. I made, I think about, made about 20% on it. <laughs> that was it in the work from home. Well, I mean, I, I, I wish I'd been shorted in the last six to seven weeks. But um, so there was a lot of concentration in the market and, and it was, you could understand it. The thesis was, was, was sensible, it was hmm. plausible, right? Governments around the world tell everyone to stay at home. Well, what do you do if you stay at home and you've, you, you want to try and work? Well, you have to have video conferencing and the like, so on and so forth. And there's a number of companies that were massive beneficiaries. So the Amazons of this world were obviously, you know, and we all know the names of these mega cap stocks. Yep. The thing is, though, when, when you've got um, that, that kind of momentum in this sector, that kind of concentration, if you add up the, the, the market value of the top eight, uh, these mega cap names that were the big beneficiaries. It, it's it's over. It's about eight to nine trillion dollars of market cap. Sounds about right. Yep. Now, if you're a fund manager, and we've now got this miraculous vaccine, which was pretty much unpredictable not many months ago. I mean, it's a miracle. It's, it's a miracle of science and medicine that so we've got a, a vaccine with an efficacy. Of, 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 of the three well, what, vaccines that we have. What, what can be done if you pull all the, all the stops and all the blocks out of the way and just fund it? Well, I, I said in my note, uh, I, I wrote a special pain report actually the night, the, the day after the, the Pfizer news, and I said we need to celebrate the ingenuity of humanity. Yeah. And this was a marvellous you know, moment in time. And the vaccine is the ignition, is the spark which lights all this fiscal and monetary fuel. It also will spark fund managers into moving out of their overweight um, mega cap names and they're going to have to start, believe it or not, fund managers are going to have to start looking at valuations. Yeah. Now, this is something which is a dirty word now in, in most fund management companies. Um, of course, when something's running hot, they forget all about valuations. <laughs> and we saw it in 99, 2000. Some of the worst, sorry, not worst, I should use another word, some of the best old-fashioned fund managers in the world found every excuse uh, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the English vocabulary to justify owning all the tech stocks in 99, 2000. Because let's call a spade a spade. They're, they're closet indexation uh, index huggers. Yeah, it's, it's just easy. And their business, business <laughs> mantra is the relentless pursuit of mediocrity. <laughs> Namely, to be near... The in, as close to the index as possible. So as we move towards the end of this year and into next, uh, fund managers, when they start looking at valuations again, will say, oh, okay, look at these companies. Most of them are in the small cap space. Yep. Um, you know, some of them are deep cyclicals and they're going to start moving money. Now, the problem is they're all long the same stuff. It's, the most, it's been the most crowded trade in the fund manager survey. To, how many months in a row now? Absolutely. That long fang. And just what been- we know, on November the 9th or 10th, when we had the, the, the most severe rotation from, from growth to value, the largest single day rotation. I'm getting those zeros for you as well. Tracy right. Alloway posted it. Yeah. The, um, <laughs> the, 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 that rotation. We know that's the so-called pain trade. Yeah. Which momentum. means everyone was overweight, the growth, and underweight value. Yep. And, but it, fund managers don't respond immediately. They take time. Yeah, and it, they're still taking their time to rotate their portfolios into something looking a little bit more respectable. Well, especially if, if everyone thinks that there could be this blow-off top that's going to uh, over the next few. And then you've got 
the the way that fund managers work as well is that the adults have to take a bit of a break time over this time as well for holidays. They've got the kids in charge of the desk, no selling, whatever you do, maybe don't buy, but definitely don't sell and just hold through it and see what you're going to happen. I think that maybe the, the, the start of the new year might be a bit of a shock to a lot of people as, as we get back into this because people won't be ready for it then. They won't be ready for it. But talking about that, the JP Morgan um, year ahead note came out a couple of notes uh, nights ago. Had a bit of a look through it. So they're funny you mention it, momentum to value forward PE spread is at a record level. It's in the 100th percentile, which is even higher than TMT. But momentum to market spread is in the 98th percentile. So these are record numbers. Momentum crowding indicator is flashing red. The growth to value correlation is unsustainably stretched. There's, it's, it, it, something's got to give. One of, those, one of those sides of that equation just has to pull back into the other. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm on the same page here because every single sentiment um, indicator I'm looking at is is flashing red. Uh, in my own portfolio, I'm basically expressing this in a number of ways. My youngest son, uh, who I may may indeed actually listen to your podcast if I if I tell him to. Um, <laughs> we months ago um, we were talking about the prospect of a vaccine, and he said, "Okay, well, there's why don't you just go and buy Rolls Royce?" And I, I looked up the Rolls-Royce share price and I went, I can't buy that. That thing's going out of business. He said, well, well, if you want to express, you know, a, a kind of global recovery trade, you know, Rolls-Royce is the kind of, could be a classic play. Anyway, he called me every single day for weeks and only to keep him quiet, I bought Rolls-Royce. I now, of course, wish that I'd quintupled my exposure to Rolls-Royce because it's pathetic. Um, but of course, it's up 76%. Um, since that time. So that's the kind of bounce we can get um, in these names. Conversely, Zoom now is down probably 30-something percent uh, from its recent highs. That's pretty significant. But the other area I'm looking at, and just in the last few days, in fact, what day is it today, James? Thursday. Thursday today. I think it was Monday or Tuesday, I bought puts on the SMH, which is a ETF, semiconductor ETF. Uh, which the underlying is obviously SOX, S-O-X, the, the Philly Semiconductor Index. Yep. Um, for a number of reasons, vols are pretty low, so the, the, the purchase of the put's not that expensive. Yep. And uh, I think I've, uh, I used a 200 strike. Anyway, um, so I'm beginning to now position and to accelerate that kind of growth-to-value transition in the market. And semiconductors, just if you look at the SOX index, it's trading nearly 40% above its 200-day moving average. Which is... That's really extended. Yeah. And if you go back in the last 20 years, there's only one other time it's been more extended above its 200-day moving average. And that, of course, was March the 14th, 2000, the, the day before it, it all, fell. It all, it all Precipitously. Ours, so we, we, funny story, because we actually had semiconductors until last week. And right. we, we, were, we were stopped out on, a, on our exit indicator. It's one of our, in our quant strategy. Ah. We've been, we have four ETFs in our quant strategy at all times, unless they get stopped out because they go too high. Right. So semiconductors went, um, and, uh, and the other two that we've got have gone as well. We now, would, would it, but we couldn't be in cash. And so we're now just joining the market and just being index huggers because that's what right. you've got to do. But semiconductors did, did go through a very, very rare take profit um, area yep. for us. And that's, yep. that was an indicator there as well. So you're on the other side. Now, nasty candle in semiconductors last night. Yeah. Um, it did. So that's, that's not bad with those puts. Another nasty candle last night, which I don't like because I'm actually long this as well, is gold. 
So you, mm, you, I you, know. Um, I know. That's this is a painful conversation. No, hey, you know, it's all right. It's going to go up. It's fine. Everything does. So, um, your your take on gold through December? Yeah. Okay. Uh, gold's a tricky one for me, and and, and let me just emphasise that I'm not a gold bug. Never have been. Never will be. Um, I I've find gold an interesting place to be. You know, when the environment is is, is appropriate. Very very aggressively long gold um, in 2019-20. And then um, basically exited after that August high. I think it was August when we went above that 22,000. Very sharp decline. Uh, since then, I've just started buying gold again um, through gold futures. I think it's the February is the current contract. And GDX, which is the, uh, you know, obviously the gold mining ETF in the United States. And selectively in amongst some of the Australian gold miners, which have sold, by the way, off 30 35% from their, their August highs. They'll fire up, I'm sure. So I'm still, you know, really small in this trade yeah. um, and looking to accumulate. And I, got, I was starting to get really excited because the MACD looked really promising. We all know December's a pretty strong month. In the last four or five years, gold has rallied very strongly in December. Yeah. Seasonally, it's a, it's a good time to be in gold. Also, we've seen the US dollar rolling over against the euro, and we all know that classic relationship between a declining US dollar and a rising uh, gold price. And I, I felt, you know, maybe a few investors having sold out of their gold ETFs, we'd seen big selling in the gold ETFs and a lot of excitement about Bitcoin. So a lot of people were selling their gold, <laughs> gold and buying Bitcoin and uh, very cleverly, you know, they did, did a fabulous job, well done. I thought that trade may have kind of run its course. And so I started buying gold and, and I felt pretty good about it until last night. Yeah, it's interesting. And I woke up, I won't tell you what time, James, I woke up this morning and uh, I looked at gold and I actually, you know, said something unfortunate, turned on my Bloomberg and I kept looking, how can gold was down $30? Yeah. How can gold be down? I said, no, gold can't be down $30. Why is it down $30? <laughs> but then, of course, I was very happy to see what the semiconductors had done. And I was actually short NASDAQ futures as well overnight, which was rather nice. So it kind of ameliorated some of the pain that I was in. But that's kind of where I am at the moment. Um, I, I do subscribe to the, the growth to value and I do subscribe to the low, uh, large cap to small cap. I do subscribe to the reflationary thesis. I do subscribe to the view that we're going to get some traction um, in the so-called quantity theory of money uh, because I don't think there's a politician or a central banker who wants to be the first to stop this party yeah and the party will keep on going i'm uh, i'm certain so with nothing else to say i believe that we've got to wrap it up because we've all got places to be and things to do thank you very much no, my pleasure jonathan for joining us um thank you and it's it's been good uh, don't forget to subscribe to the show don't forget to subscribe to the pain report as well rate and review us wherever you get your podcast you can find us on itunes at the bip show we're on Twitter. It's at the underscore BIP underscore show. And we're on Facebook too. Just search The BIP Show individually at Colgo on Twitter. James Whelan42, Ken Vixler, Ken Vexler, sorry. Uh, and Jonathan is on at The Pain Report. I implore you, as I said before, please subscribe to the newsletter. It's, uh, it's fantastic. So hit subscribe, rate the show. Love those five-star ratings. Thanks very much. Uh, Jonathan, anything else to say? Thank you very much for No, for, it's for great being to be with you, James and yeah. Paul. Really lovely. And thank, thanks very much for the so invitation. Fascinating yeah. chat. Uh, thanks so much. Um, good being in the house of pain uh, <laughs> for a little half an hour. All right. Yeah. Well, Paul, the key's back over. The aircraft is yours.
Gotta, I have control. Yeah, you have control. <laughs> talk, you want to talk about the producers? Uh, yes, yeah, sure. <laughs> the show's produced by Eamon Connolly and Rick Salter. And um, I, I do want to say two things. So um, uh, uh, Eamon is actually with us. He's often uh, not, but he's here uh, recording the show. So thank you very much, Eamon, for all your work this year. Yeah. Thanks, Eamon. Um, thank you. Eamon. And uh, w- one other little thing. Uh, next week... <gasps> Yes, big time. Drum roll. Um, oh, the terrible. Christmas special. So um, uh, for three years running, James uh, and I uh, were part of a, a Christmas special at um, uh, when, uh, on the old show, um, Devils and Details. Mm. Uh, and we would typically feature David Scott, Joanne Masters, uh, who's now at EY, uh, and Laura Fitzsimmons, uh, who's head of, head of institutional sales at um, JP. JP Morgan here yeah. in Sydney. Um, and the good news is the band is back together with David Scott too. So um, I am really, really looking forward to that. That is going to be a stack of fun. So, uh, and we're going to have a little bit of a special guest on there too. And we might do some, we might do some uh, phone calls uh, yep. from listeners. It yep. uh, might be fun on the show. Uh, but I'm really looking forward to it. So um, don't forget, uh, if you want to get alerted, make sure you hit the subscribe button. But uh, Jonathan, thank you so much. Fascinating. My job. pleasure. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs>